welcome to the Web Policy Talk podcast recorded live at the Impact and Policy Research Institute Impri New Delhi Namaste and greetings I Ritika Sundar a researcher at Impri Impact and Policy Research Institute, Prabhav Ivam Nidhi Anusandhan Sanstan, Nadali, warmly welcome you all to Impri Hashtag Web Policy Talk. Today, we have gathered here for a book release of Remembering India's Villages, edit, edited by Santosh K. Singh, followed by a panel discussion on why India's villages matter, challenges and possibilities. This talk is a part of the series, The State of Villages, Hashtag Rural Realities, which is organized by Impri Center for Habitat, Urban and Regional Studies. The chair for today's session is Professor Surinder S. Jodka, Professor of Sociology, Center for the Study of Social Systems, Jawaharlal Nehru University, New Delhi. With the permission of the chair, I would like to introduce the panelists. Please go ahead. Thank you, sir. The first panelist is Professor Santosh K. Singh, Chandigarh-based academic and commentator, formerly founder faculty, Ambedkar University, Delhi. The second panelist is Professor Manish Thakur, Professor of Public Policy and Management, Indian Institute of Management, Calcutta. And the final panelist for the discussion is Dr. Manimekala Krishnamurti, Associate Professor of Sociology and Social Anthropology, Ashoka, Ashoka University, Sonipat. Welcome panelists. We look forward to learning from our distinguished panelists and we look forward to an enriching deliberation. With that, I invite Professor Surinder S. Jodka to release the book and make the chair's opening remarks, following which Professor Santosh will give his remarks and commence the panel discussion. Welcome, sir. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Ritika. Uh, it's an honor to be uh, releasing the book. Uh, I must uh, uh, I tied this ribbon, which can be opened. So congratulations to Santosh and all the contributors to the book. Uh, and I think this obviously is a book that uh, should be uh, noticed, uh, read and commented upon. And we hope that uh, as the title suggests, uh, remembering uh, India's villages, right? Remembering obviously implies that we have forgotten India's villages. Uh, and this uh, forgetting of the villages as critical reality to be understood, to be analyzed as you know, the call for remembering it is. And when we think about uh, uh, remembering India's villages, it may sound very strange because uh, India's villages are never forgotten at some level because two-third of India still lives in the villages and villages are talked about all the time in one way or the other. But still there is a sense in which uh, the idea of remembering becomes critical because there is a sense in which villages have been forgotten. And that is, uh, I think, post-1990s, the kind of new India that began to uh, take shape uh, in corridors of power, in uh, uh, shopping malls, uh, in uh, global imaginations was a very different kind of India from the kind of India that uh, we sociologists and social anthropologists 
began to talk about in 1940s and 50s when India was the village, right? Uh, it was, you know, when, when M.N. Shirinivas and many others went to do village studies, they were not studying villages, they were studying India, right? So village was a kind of uh, uh, microcosm of India, a kind of uh, uh, site where India lived. So village was a case study through which if you study the village, you could study India. A structure of social life of village was the social life of India. Uh, so it's not only uh, in the sense that, you know, uh, global imaginations about Indian village began to change. Uh, with the 90s, uh, you have a different kind of, uh, at some level, uh, cultural imagination of India that begins to take shape, which is middle-class centric. And that is where village begins to be forgotten as, as India, right? India begins to kind of be seen as, as the middle-class India, middle-class as uh, people say that, you know, they began to see themselves as India. Earlier middle class also used to represent India in some sense, not that, you know, people like M.N. Srinivas or other social scientists, they all came from middle classes. The planning commission had various programs and, you know, various uh, kind of issues that were talked about. So uh, uh, this is the time when uh, media gets also obsessed with, with the Indian middle classes. And, and then you have this discourse of shining India, and the global imaginations of India, which are kind of software engineers, uh, you know, we saw in universities in 1990s, uh, instead of uh, social science departments, even something like agricultural econ economics. Uh, recently, I saw OUP uh, uh, handbook of, 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 of Indian economy. And you won't believe me, OUP handbook of Indian economy has no chapter on Indian agriculture. Uh, this was kind of strange. I mean, agriculture used to be the Indian economy, like, you know, 80%, 90% Indians lived in villages and, and majority of them obviously worked in agriculture. It continues to be the most important economic sector in Indian economy, but still uh, Oxford Handbook of uh, Economics, Indian economy, uh, does not have a chapter on, on Indian agriculture, which is kind of quite shocking. And this also reflects uh, economists are not simply social scientists. They are also at some level uh, engineers of the Indian economy. And these engineers at some level then also shape policy imaginations. And states' policies are obviously very, very critical. Not that village can be forgotten by the Indian state in some sense, uh, in policy circles, in, in state policies, if you look at budgets that, 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 that emerge of rural in, on rural India, rural development, they actually go up in the 90s and 2000 with MG Narega. There are many other programs but it is still kind of uh, a peripheral activity. The real India is somewhere else and that is very clearly reflected in, in the comparative uh, development of different sectors. The service sector kind of zooms up, uh, and, uh, followed by manufacturing sector, agriculture sector goes down and you know, from like you know, 40, 50% in 30, 40 years, agriculture begins to be as low as uh, 13 to 14 or 15%. And then we also have this whole what we now are talking about uh, is how agriculture is, is completely marginalized. Uh, but obviously, uh, village is more than agriculture. And uh, so remembering uh, would require raising all these questions. How come village was forgotten? Why village was for forgotten? And in what ways village was forgotten? In many ways, village is not forgotten because if two-thirds of India continues to live in villages and another say 10% is very closely tied to village in one way or the other, either they go back after a week or otherwise their families are in the villages even though 
they may be staying in cities or their families actually reproduce themselves in, in, in villages and you have migrant laborers working in big cities. So village has never been in that sense uh, forgotten, but in some sense village has been forgotten as, as I was trying to tell earlier. So I think uh, remembering requires uh, discussing all these things and uh, this book at some level deals with some of those, but at the same time, I think in this panel, uh, we should also, and we will perhaps discuss uh, beyond remembering, you know, there's also need to revision the village. Right? I think to begin with, I think we have uh, somebody like Manish Thakur with us who has been writing on this. Uh, how, how do you uh, revision the idea of rural, right? And uh, we also will have uh, Mekla who has been working on agricultural markets, uh, which at some level uh, tells you how uh, a village is connected uh, through market. The, the imagination of village through market itself implies that you're not talking about, about uh, uh, village in, in isolation, the way British colonial administrators thought of village as, as, as independent republics. And many of us continue to, at some level, carry that hangover that villages are these isolated uh, autonomous places. But the moment you talk about agricultural markets, that means uh, there is kind of always integrated mediation of village uh, that, that happens through markets, but markets are the non, not the only way through which uh, villages need to be revisioned. So I think some of these issues will come up and we will begin with Professor Santosh Kumar, who has edited this book and who has also been working not only on, on, on rural India, but also on very interesting kind of dynamics, for example, uh, uh, the Dalits of Punjab or Ravidasis who are at some level uh, rural, but at the same time, they are equally global. Dera Sachkan Ballan, where he's done his field work, uh, at some level connects to global audience when they have their own kirtan. And so the community is imagined uh, right in its kind of inception as a global community. So Ravidasias, and if you look at the history of becoming Ravidasias, it's very interestingly connected with with, with global migrations right from Manguram in 1920s to 1960s and the recent migrations. So uh, uh, this would perhaps you know, become uh, an occasion to also revision uh, categories of, of village and revision realities of what we think of it as village. And I'll come back to this point in my presentation later on uh, in my five, 10 minutes. Uh, now, as, 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 as I've been told, by organizers that we should kind of proceed with the program. And I invite Mr. Santosh Kumar Singh. Again, I think if he's uh, live now, I congratulate him once again and all the contributors who have, who, have, who have written this book. I have not yet read the whole book. I've read parts of it, but uh, so I will not try to provide a review of the book. And as Santosh told me, this is not a review of the book or it's not a book release function. The book release is happening, but we are talking about rural realities and those rural realities uh, I think uh, need to be talked about and that is the context in which I think we should we should we should mention uh, this title and I invite uh, uh, Santosh Kumar Singh to, to uh, speak for 10 minutes and then we will go to Manish Thakur. Thank you very much sir and I'm sorry that there has been a serious uh, you know issue with the technology part you know as always it happens especially when you when you actually want to be there, this happens. So, but let me first of all, thank Professor Jyotka for being very generous to, to all that I have done so far in the sense that, uh, uh, you know, uh, it's good that people like you are around, you know, 
rural actually continues to thrive and survive because of some of you, the senior uh, professors. And uh, so thank you very much, sir. I also would like to uh, thank my co-panelists. Um, uh, Mekla will be joining, Manish, and everybody else. And most importantly, also, uh, uh, you know, in pre-team for, for uh, you know, putting up this space. And uh, hello? Am I, am I? Yes, audible? please go ahead. Yeah. You're sounding very good. You're looking very good. Please go ahead. Yeah. So, I, uh, you know, uh, uh, thank you very much, uh, uh, Impri team and, uh, and my co-panelists and also uh, uh, all the contributors of this volume. Uh, I wanted to actually read out a few paragraphs from the book, but I thought now that this is really got delayed uh, from my side, I thought I will just uh, uh, talk a little bit about uh, how this uh, trajectory of the idea of rural actually has has gone through a pretty specific kind of uh, 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 journey, you know, in the sense that it started off very well, their early days, till 80s, there were a lot of interest in the, in the rural and the villages of India. But 80s onwards, as I mentioned it in my my book, also in the introduction chapter, that there is a, there is a lapse and then there's a revival of this in, interest in the villages now. And uh, I'm not saying uh, in the context of the, of course, the uh, uh, farm bill and the and related uh, issues are always uh, are there for the last one and a half year. But the idea of rural has been making uh, news, you know, uh, uh, in the 90s itself, when it was, it was kind of, uh, it looked like it is it has disappeared. It came back actually as a, as a crisis situation when large number of suicide cases were being reported from areas which were actually supposed to be the green belts or green revolution belts of India. So it, it, it sort of uh, from the heyday of 70s and when there were village studies were very, very prominently, uh, you know, making, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, taking the center stage and a lot of people, in fact, all the early uh, anthropologists and sociologists were uh, you know, uh, had one village uh, to their name for sure. Professor Srinivas, Andre Bete, everybody, you, you name it, and early sociologists, anthropologists did have something to do with or, or uh, to the village India. So in that sense, the interest in the village India continued for, for a longer period of time. But then it's, it's, yes, there was a lull. There was a complete disappearance, almost disappearance from for almost about two decades, but it comes back in the 90s uh, in, in, a, in a crisis situation, as we all know. Uh, but now, the, you know, and these are the things that I discuss. Even the Bollywood cinema actually dropped the very idea of making films on villages related theme. Every now and then you will have people live and all of this. But yes, in the sense that things changed for, for that. Somehow we, we, we got really, really... Uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, totally inclined towards the urban. Urban was dazzling, and urban was the. It looked like the, where the future of India lies. Rural was relegated in the background, in some sense, I argue. Uh, you know, someone who did a PhD on 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 you know in Uttarakhand on, on something like agribusiness and how different communities respond to the idea of agribusiness differently. I think it was uh, and over the years and almost about ten uh, uh, last twenty years in teaching and I taught courses uh, which were which were very dear to me and large number of students were very interested uh, that I taught in uh, uh, it had a field component so I even now uh, students do remember and and all that so the point that I always uh, I, I kind of always engaged with is, the, is is to 
why is it that uh, the younger sociologists and students are not really interested in studying uh, rural India, for example? I don't hear, uh, you know, the same is the story I hear from my colleagues in different places. So there'll be a lot of people, uh, you know, interested in many other things, but not many actually, uh, that's my experience, but I'm sure I'll be very happy to be, to be, to be contradicted, you know, and I'll be very happy to hear that there are researchers who are interested in rural India. But somehow, I, I, my experiences had been that uh, not many people were, were really interested, but now the, there is some interest. But to, to respond to this, this, this volume that I have just put together, uh, uh, it, it is a very interesting collection of some of my uh, colleagues writing and also some of my students writing. They are now doing PhDs elsewhere, you know, and they have contributed. So, and I did a course in Ambedkar University called Understanding the Rural and, you know, uh, Sociology of Agriculture, these courses. And I was pretty, uh, you know, I'm, I'm happy that this, this volume has come, if not for anything else, but at least it will create a buzz and it will, it will remind us that there is, a, there, is some, there is a theme called Village India, which needs our attention. And so having said this about this book, and uh, I will come to this second part of the discussion, which is about why India's villages uh, uh, matter. Villages always mattered, you know, in, in the sense why now, but it always did matter. But for some reason, I think, and they, probably a very commonsensical straight answer would be that yes, because of the fact that even after 70 plus years, two thirds of India's people live in these villages. So at least for this region, India, India's villages do matter. Yes, that, that's one part. But the, the second and more theoretical part to me is that uh, for some reason, and I, this is my sense about the way we handle the concept of rural and urban, for example, it always looked like a very, uh, what, what should one say, there are two bipolar islands, sort of, you know, there are two, uh, you know, two sets of, uh, uh, you know, ideas, you know, separated, you know, totally delinked from each other. And there is a unilinear, unidirectional kind of sense of uh, connection between the rural and urban. So uh, everybody wants to be, to, to visit, uh, to go to the urban. Urban meant success, urban meant, you know, I remember uh, uh, one line, that one sentence from Deepankar Gupta is this thing that at least in urban India, when people sleep and they have a dream and it's possible that probably tomorrow that dream can be, can be fulfilled. But urban rural India doesn't have that possibility, it looks like. But, you know, the, the point is that uh, this kind of conceptualization did actually create issues with, with the manner in which rural was looked upon. And so urban looked like it's here to stay and urban is, the, is, is where the future lies. And the rural is something which is disappearing. Rural is something which is, which is going to go away. The sad part is that, and we always wondered in the class that, you know, why is it that when things change in urban, we call it change. But when things change in rural, we call it disappearing. There is the problem because yes, there are signposts have changed, you know, in rural India. Rural, I remember a few, few years back, there was this uh, data which came, which said that, you know, uh, rural India out, outpace uh, in uh, urban India in consumption pattern. And I know that uh, some people were really uh, sort of uh, were surprised with this, you know. Uh, okay, so because we always thought that urban is consumption, rural is on the rural is something which produces sort of, you know, but consume, consume, consumers are all there in the urban India. But, you know, these are the, these kind of surprises and shocks and, and kind of uh, uh, understanding uh, to my mind, emerges out of our, our, the manner in which these, these, these two words, rural and urban, have been theorized and, you know, sort of conceptualized. 
So there is an element of bipolarity between the rural and urban, and it looks like that urban is thriving, urban is here to stay and future with that future. Rural is something which is going, disappearing, declining, and going to go away. That uh, that um, that that something had been totally debunked. And as I said in the beginning, that the fact that uh, you know uh, uh, they are still about two thirds of India's population live there depend depend on uh, you know villages. And most importantly, and that I, that I would say like to say that you know uh, during the pandemic and during the lockdown, when uh, the you know the, we saw these thousands of men and women, children walking from these metropolitan cities and towns of India towards their homes, so-called homes. Homes. If we kept hearing, you know, I was really thinking that, you know, what is it that 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 driving them back? If if rural was such a hellhole, if rural was absolutely so hopeless, why is it that in such a crisis, they, these people only think of their homes? And I have no factual uh, you know, uh, conviction in the sense I have nothing, I have no research on this. It's pretty new, but it set me thinking as to if rural was so, so lost, why did that thousands of people, migrants, when it came to that crunch, that crisis, rural, urban India actually behaved exactly what it, what was expected, you know, that there was no, uh, what do you call the communitarian greed, the sense of trust. And so migrants just walked thousands of miles, and that was not a small, small event. This was something which was absolutely uh, historic, you know, in the sense that it set me thinking, and it must have set thinking other people, sort of who thought that rural had nothing to offer. So if the rural had nothing to offer, why did that thousands and millions of people who travel during lockdown to those same villages, whether it's Punjab or Madhya Pradesh or Chhattisgarh, what was about that rural, which, which actually gave a sense of assurance, a sense of shelter, sense of that, okay, you come back, we'll take care of you. I, I would like to hope that, you know, uh, uh, some of us who do rural sociology or village interested in Village India would, would take up this theme and probably now, and hopefully the corona is, is going or go on, gone. We will at least do some research and to find out what is it about these, these villages, which, which brought them back and why from Chennai to Maharashtra to from, not many were from Punjab by the way, but still, Migrants actually move toward the villages after all. So that's something I, it, it's really, I continue to engage with. And I hope that uh, uh, that should, that should uh, you know, tell us something more about not may, village merely in terms of our, uh, you know, prototype understanding what India, but village India had changed, you know, and, and this is one thing that I, I do discuss and, and I, I'm thinking of. And another theme which uh, I, I'm, I would like to, uh, look, look, look at very closely that of aspiration idea, idea of aspiration among the youth of the rural India, you know, and the third part is that of, uh, you know, uh, how does this, uh, you know, kind of translate into us, uh, you know, why, why, how does this mobile technology made a difference to the, to the villages of India? And I was, I'm not sure if uh, any Indian sociologists have worked, but I, few days back, I found somebody, some, some, uh, when Bill, Sir, I think we just. I think we just lost his connection. So, uh, Professor Jatka, would you like to proceed?
and invite our other panelists. Just wait for a minute. I think he might come back. Please. Right. Just half a minute. Mm -hmm. I think he'd already taken his 10 minutes. We can perhaps move on to Manish. Uh, right. Should I? Hit some very interesting points about the book and uh, migrations and uh, the need to do rural sociology and how village is changing, mobile technology is transforming uh, the idea of village and uh, why should village be forgotten and there's so many people living in the village. So I think some of these points we can bring back discussion uh, Manish, uh, he's still not joined, so I think you can start from wherever you want to. Can I now? Yeah, please go ahead. Okay, thank you, Professor Jotka. I'm happy to be here, and more so because you are in the chair. At least I have intellectually, I don't know whether I have grown, but I have made an attempt to engage with some of your writings when I was doing my doctoral research, and that's why. Uh, I will be happy to uh, share with you, all of you, some of the half-baked, disjointed points that I have so that I can extract more insightful remarks towards the end of this event. First of all, uh, I must congratulate uh, uh, my senior, uh, Santosh Bhai, who were in the same hostel, Jhelum, uh, for this book. And I think in our times, the times we live in, it really... It calls for plenty of academic courage to write or edit a book on village in whatever form you do. So for that academic courage, I congratulate him. Number two, I want to begin by making a general remark on the history of the discipline, which takes so much pride in having established village at the center of the world. And my impression is that that large number of us, most of us, except few of, uh, you know, anthropologists, sociologists here and there, we have really not engaged with village as such, or the idea of the village, or the ideology of the village, whatever you call it. We have looked at village just merely as an empirical container. Our interest was in caste, our interest was in class, our interest was in agrarian relations, 100 other things, inter-community relations, change, modernity, you know, I don't want to get into all those textbookist things. So except few writings here and there, and I recall Professor Jodka, your Oxford Development Studies article, and you have looked at the place of the village in nationalist imagination, Gandhi, Nehru, Ambedkar. So just you tell me how many such writings you have. So that's my first submission to you, that though we keep referring to village being the, what you say, the central point of our discipline and having played your own, we have not really engaged with village as a blueprint of a good life or a collective life or a, a civilizational sort of blueprint. That's my first point. Number two, and when uh, we try to bring in this idea of the village, then six, six decades down the line after independence, the heyday of the village being at the center, we should also admit that village no longer has the same place or it hardly has a place in our imagination, collective Im imagination. And the next question would be that, why is it so? And uh, sometimes my was referring to aspirations and things like that. That's one point that how, in terms of aspirations, those who live in the villages and those who live 
in non-villages, they have roughly the same sort of ambition and aspiration. But my point is uh, something different. I think that whatever has happened in last 60 years or whatever, to put it more uh, actively, we have done, we have made sure that village becomes more and more of a governmentalized locality. I borrowed this term uh, from a geographer who had published an article in JPS long back, Raju Das. So the village that we see today is village where the state has entered in a big way. So the veins and capillaries of the village are in a way, I purposely want to use this word, are contaminated by the uh, vision of the state, whatever you call it, development, uh, plans and programs or schemes of various sorts. That's my first point. Number two, and which uh, post-1991, uh, some of us have made note to that, there is this another relative rupture of the old type of cosmic ritual universe of the village. And the conceptually we can bring in market. So the point I'm trying to bring in here is that we have to see that how this idea of the village has been subjected to multiple sorts of rupture coming from the state on the one hand and market on the other. And if we factor in these two types of rupture, then we at times, at least I laugh that then, where is that village about which we had such evocative expressions, some great banyan tree, some Barham Baba near a people tree, or the type of, you know, the Mati of this village, and the Marty of that village and every village having its own uh, soil-based qualities. Uh, and those of you, I need not remind you, I am invoking the type of work that Valentine Daniel has done, that the, the, the rupture of that cosmic organic idea of the village where everything is linked to everything else in a very intimate organic way. Even if there was such a village, of course, uh, our uh, predecessors have shown that there was there was such a village, but even if there was such a village, I, we should not be uh, you know hesitating in admitting that that village no longer exists. In other words, what I'm trying to say is that this glorification, this sanctified territoriality, that was almost uh, in a way. Uh, made into an implicit assumption by large number of early generation anthropologists that needs to be seriously investigated. Uh, and that, of course, I, I don't want to query this theme that whether villages matter. Villages would matter, of course, they would matter demographically. They would matter in political administrative terms, whether you define a village as a panchayat or municipal corporation. Of course, large number of Indians would continue to settle between villages and cities. But to borrow another expression uh, that uh, Jonathan Perry had used in a different context while he was working on rely workers, that we have made village into some sort of railway platform. So the village, even though we saw large number of migrants going back to the village, it's not that they are going there to respond to the call of the Mati. At least personally, I don't believe that. They are going there because they don't have ration card, which will give them ration in Mumbai. So they have to go back to village even to get five kg of rice. So I don't believe in this 
essentialized attributes of the village, which are, you know, pulling large number of them towards the village or have ever done that in the case. So village for us at least has become that sort of platform where everyone metaphorically is waiting for the next available train to catch and leave that, leave that place. Because villages do not generate hope. And when I say villages do not generate hope, it's not because uh, villages don't want to that. We have conspired to convert villages into such places of despondency and despair. So my last point, and I don't want to take more than 10 minutes is that, that if we want to assert that villages matter even now in our times, in contemporary times, then we also have to talk about in the same breath that what are all those other macro things, macro processes, which are at least working on the contrary. And I, I, and I would suggest that there are n number of macro processes which are making sure that villages don't matter in this country. In the ultimate analysis, villages do not inspire the idea of a good life. And as long as villages do not inspire the idea of a good life for a large number of people, I'm not talking about ethnicized villages like Hodgecars and having a farmhouse uh, on the outskirts of Delhi. But if the a generic <laughs> average village does not inspire you uh, that it's good life is possible within the confines of that village boundary, and if everyone wants to have a flat in the huge paddy fields of Noida and Faridabad, come what may, and if you can't afford Noida and Faridabad to the nearest district headquarters and the town or shahar or kasba that you can afford, then surely uh, it's time for us to think of, I'm being tentative here, writing an obituary to the idea of the village rather than singing peons to the idea of the village. That's all. Thank you. Professor Jyotha, please unmute. I said, uh, thank you very much, Manish, for presenting a depressing kind of scenario. Uh, I think uh, we will come back to some of these questions. Before I invite uh, Mr. Mekla uh, Krishnamurti, I would ask Santosh if he has some compelling point that he wanted to conclude his uh, presentation with for another two minutes. Uh, you can uh, go on and then we'll ask Mekla to come. Yes, because I think uh, uh, it was always, uh, it was, I, I, I always feel that this, uh, you know, with this statement itself that as Manish uh, said, I, I do uh, tend to disagree. You know, and I always feel that, you know, uh, not it, the village is not merely in terms of demography. And I pose this question, pose this question again, that, oh, what is it that made thousands and thousands of men and women and children to go towards villages, you know, in time of crisis during the pandemic? If I, I did ask this, I did, uh, I'm, I'm sure I was audible that this, this remains and I, I'm continue to engage with this. If everything was so, so, so gone and so, so, uh, you know, uh, sort of, uh, you know, uh, sinking in, in the villages of India, and uh, not just about demography and the statecraft and all of this, but I also feel, I think we have to look at it from some other lens, which is not necessarily economic, uh, you know, way of looking at the idea of village, you know, and there is no essential, I would like to believe that 
and uh, uh, you know what was it for example when everything collapsed in mumbai and delhi and everywhere you know and the queues long queues of people you know and remember they were all they decided to travel they take the thousands of kilometers there must have been something and i'm not going to call the call this uh, typically pull and push factor and all of this but i would definitely at some point of time i would like to know as to what what was it about these villages which which got them back was it just ration card or or what or something else or was it about something which urban india sort of failed to provide them despite the fact that migrants created this uh, you know the in many sense the maids and the and you know the factory workers and then the, the you know the houses that they, they made these are the people who created urban in you know you know literally but when it came to crunch it came to crunch you know when it came to a situation where it looked like that you know even humans were kind of trying to uh, you know stay away from the humans that's crisis then only place that the, the, the migrants could think of in madhya pradesh from bombay to madhya imagine from maharashtra to to chatisgarh that kind of journey i mean that journey i would like to engage with and my my sense my hunch is that it's not just about economy village is also about something else it's a kind of greed of networks it maybe it can community based networks caste based network all that but fine but it it's in that time of crisis it most certainly gave them what urban india did not so what is it about the rural india which i know you know kind of gave them a sense of shelter sense of home and and you know and and they, everybody wanted to you know to to to, to go and reach there once they reached there they said oh now and we are we are fine what was it so so i think this this we have to engage with and i agree with uh, manis that yes in that sense everybody wants a home in in noida in gaziabad in patna or you know munge district whatever the point is that i think uh, village india does need a, a few new lenses to kind of look at and and the pandemic was, was should be that that moment which which allow, which which kind of create that those questions you know fresh questions about looking at rural india and the village india so these are my my uh, uh, you know the uh, sort of uh, uh, some some inputs you know some comments on uh, you know uh, uh, what manish just said sir yes if mekhla is here she can yeah, so we will come back to some of these points i suppose in the discussion uh, as we introduced mekhla in the beginning uh, she is somebody who works on a subject which at some level uh, makes some of these questions redundant uh, the way we think of rural in contrast to urban and then you know we when we are thinking about rural we are actually thinking about the urban and vice versa the way manish was talking about was actually talking about you know middle class aspirations and middle class uh, self identities etc etc so and mekla's work is talking about uh, the rural uh, at the mandi and i think that is the site where <clears throat> uh, the, the 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 binaries disappear and this is a point which at some level helps us to the point that i was making in the beginning revisioning of 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 spaces like rural and urban and i think we'll hear from her and then we'll come back to some of those issues um thank you so much um first my very profuse apologies for the delay in joining the panel uh, it just turned out to be a, a a big clash um i have to say i felt a lot today particularly we were talking about the rural and urban i felt a lot like many of the farmers i meet who don't really take too many of their commitments in terms of time 
exact time to meet you very seriously. So they will always say, Ruki, I'm coming, and it will be like whenever, you know, so I really felt today like I'm saying, yeah, yeah, I'm going to be here. I'll also be there and I'll figure it out. But I'm so sorry to be late. Um, <laughs> but uh, let me begin with that apology and the congratulations to Professor uh, Santosh Singh for this book. Uh, it's always wonderful to have, uh, you know, another book out there that we can engage with, particularly one built on empirical material. Um, I haven't had a chance to read it yet. I'm very much looking forward to seeing uh, the chapters and what you've, you know, been able to put together. Uh, since I haven't seen the book, and I don't know if uh, uh, Professor Jodka has already talked about this, but it struck me for a second to think about the title. Um, because of course, in sociology amongst us, when we say remembered, remembering villages, it's difficult to avoid the remembered village. And that is to go back to, uh, to MN Srinivas. And when we do that, we often forget that that wasn't about a, a disappearing village or remembering that the village was important. It was actually a confession about his own method. It was about notes that got burnt and a village that had to be reconstructed by memory. Uh, and memory is always important, right? In thinking and, and uh, writing and in our work as anthropologists and sociologists, our notes, how we return to them. So I think sometimes the term, because that book was so influential, the remembered in that is often misunderstood as a forgotten rather than a remembered as a methodological point. Um, and I think it, it tells you a lot about then how we as sociologists and anthropologists construct and engage with the village always somewhere in the past, somewhere as an idealized future, but it was a method point. It was how he had to write about this particular village and his experiences. Um, and I think we often turn our methods sometimes uh, just the Jugadi ways in which we have to do work into high philosophy or even approaches of how we are thinking about what are really complex subjects. So, I mean, this remembered struck me as in we are now saying remembering, as in don't forget them, but it signals a remembering which had nothing to do with uh, whether the village is there or not there. Uh, or is disappearing uh, as an empirical or as an analytical category, but had to do with whether we, how we engage with it, right, as sociologists. And I think it, it struck me this, you know, as I was thinking that that's something we should be honest about, um, you know, and I think this is also the point um, um, uh, Professor Manish Thakur made when he said, you know, how do we think about the, the village? Um, I think the comments that have come before in some ways um, bring to the center the tension with how we think about villages, which is either as an empirical reality, as an enduring empirical reality, uh, or a changing one, but certainly one that still remains quite dominant, or as an analytical or imaginative or philosophical category. Right. And um, I think Professor Thakur made the point that people don't, and sociologists often don't, they're not interested in the village as an idea. But yet, you know, when you think about the way the village is often talked about, whether we use the word global village, it's supposed to signify interconnectedness. Or, you know, Hillary Clinton made very famous this idea of it takes a village to raise a child. 
right? Again, this idea that it is the village and those sites of connections. So the notion that the village has a particular set of interconnectedness, intimacy, moral economy, uh, interdependence has, is often used predominantly by globalization and urban sites to produce this imagination and sense or affective sense of interconnectedness, right? And so while we may not take it very seriously sometimes or take it adequately uh, seriously, that is certainly the way in which it has been invoked. Um, and so I think that raises you know, an interesting question. Um, I wanted to just, I think uh, Professor Jodhka knows me and my work, so he sort of set up exactly where I was going to go. Uh, and I was going to say that I think we are not doing well enough either with the empirical understanding of the village, nor with our analytical understanding of it. And I think part of that is because we are not able to see the two together. If we spend enough time in sites, either moving between or seeing the village and its lives and the way in which interconnections unfold, I think the answers on how we can be more analytically imaginative, but also much more engaged with the actual complexities of these relationships, right? Uh, it is a relational world. And I think as sociologists, our biggest strength is our ability to engage with relational complexity. And if we do that as a method, then I think the grounds for that imagination of the village, of understanding it in all of its registers, uh, the everyday life, uh, the, the ways in which it leads to certain political engagement and political imagination, questions of home and belonging, questions of market and economy, all of them get reshaped and rechallenged. So, you know, I would like to, and even town and village and village and town and all of this. So, I mean, I'll give you just three examples and, uh, you know, just from uh, the way in which people describe these things. And this has to do with the fact that I dwelled in a mandi, uh, which is a site, um, it's a small town, very connected to villages, uh, but was very much a site where um, you see both intimacy and interconnections. Right. And that, you know, most of the time in small town ethnographies used to say that you were either on your way to the village or on your way to the city and you missed the small town and the small towns are therefore a very interesting place to see all this interconnectedness. Um, and of course, when I started my fieldwork, this was in 2008, there were, as uh, you know, uh, Professor Singh was saying, there were more mall ethnographies coming out then there were Mandi ethnographies coming out and certainly village ethnographies, it wasn't fashionable at all um, to study. So, um, you know, I'd like to give you just three examples. The, the, you know, we always say we go back to the Jajmani heap and the grain heap was on the village floor. And one of the things you really see was that that was a failure. These ruptures didn't happen later. Uh, that was a failure of anthropologists to see the market and the state in the already existing village heap, right? The village heap was part of tax revenue. It was part of fiscal collection. It was part of the colonial revenue state. The state was all over that heap. Cash was also all over that heap, but nobody wanted to pay attention to it and made it into this idea of an idealized reciprocal system. Uh, you know, Chris Puller wrote about this in 1980s uh, when he did misconceiving the grain heap. 
But the problem was, it was not just misconceiving, right? We needed to reconceive it. We need to understand the ways in which materiality and abstraction, the ways in which market relations have always existed. And the way in which the non-market and the market engage even in markets and certainly in capitalism. Now that if you sit in the village heap, you will see that, right? Some shares are paid in cash, some are paid in kind. Um, all of these relations still happen. There's a great amount of coexistence and competition uh, in the way in which these uh, you know, uh, relations unfold. And so in some ways we didn't, we misconceived yes, but it is time for us to reconceive, right? And so the village heap gives you that sense. And once you get into places like Mondays and start exploring farmers, traders, labor, corporate capital, the state, all of these relationships, you also discover a very old fact, which again, when we think about artisans, when we think about service economy in the village, we keep missing. And now when we have situation assessments telling us that, you know, farmers depend on non-farm income, everybody's like, wow, this is a changing reality, which is extraordinary because the village has always been more than agriculture. And agriculture has always been more than rural, not just more than the village. It has also been more than rural. Uh, it has, you know, uh, you know, David Ludden used to, has this one line in one of his books where he says, for the longest time in Indian history and in South Asian history, urbanization happened inside agriculture, right? The cities emerged, you, you see this in the history of Patna for sure, but many other cities emerged from within agriculture itself. So the agrarian has always been more than rural. The rural has always been more than agriculture and lives of artisans and service communities and all of this has always been there along with service groups, right? Um, and yet scale has mattered, relationships have mattered. So in the small town I worked in, uh, you know, as a town of 75,000 people in central India, in the Narmada Valley, in Harda, uh, they used to say, like 30 years ago, they used to, 30, 40 years, they used to say, Harda was a, a village of townsmen, by which they meant it looked like a village. It was a small, very, very small Kasba-like place, but all the people who lived there were either merchants or adhikaris, right? So they said it was a village of townsmen. Today, it is a town of villagers, right? And here, they're not just talking about the fact that people, but because people come and go, the character of that town has changed. So that's another example where, you know, it really makes us think not only in the empirical terms, but what do they mean? What is being signaled when you say a place is a town of villagers? What kinds of interconnections between people coming and going, schooling has changed this relationship. Many families, one person lives in the village, another lives in the town, educating the children. There's a lot of mobility between these places. Um, that mobility comes sometimes with more urban looking vehicles, but it also comes with rural vehicles. Tractors move between them and urban vehicles become mixed in a different sense in these contexts. So again, material life is changing and they're not only signaling a status, certainly not an administrative status, 
but something about the nature of relationships, I think that is happening here. So that is a, you know, another example um, that uh, I thought would be interesting for us to pay some attention to. Um, and, you know, the final example actually I wanted to uh, talk a little bit about uh, was around uh, time. And um, to say that, you know, when I was doing my ethnography uh, after about 18 months in, there was a farmer who said, um, and so somebody, an old farmer said to him, uh, So uh, in which uh, I thought it was a beautiful expression. And uh, another farmer said, And because they're farmers, they did a very quick calculation about how much soya bean gives you and how much sugar cane gives you. And if you took shagun ka peed, like if you took teak, how much it would give you, uh, right? And, and they did this quick analysis. And then after that, uh, they said, Lambi fasal mein munafa zyada hota hai, but karz bhi zyada hota hai. Right, deaths are also greater. It's also a wonderful description of anthropological research and sociological research. Our deaths are indeed very great in the, the longer this research continues. But it was also a relationship to time. It was a deeply analytical point about deferment, about cyclicity, you know, the cycles by which they trade, about profits deferred, time taken, seasonality. Um, these shape the way in which these worlds unfold. Um, it is something we are seeing in the farmers' protest. You know, the vitality of seasonality, the ability to endure, to wait. You know, you, you've heard, you know, the farmers are not only talking about, they talk a lot about their stamina. They talk about what it means to sit in rain and hail. You know, their entire relationship to weather is completely different. And this is not just agrarian, right? I'm not just saying everything about village is agrarian, but I'm saying there are certain things that we have to pay attention to. And I think when you see people who come from the village to the city, and you see this, whether they're in protest sites, or you see this in the homes that they built, there is something very particular about the imagination of the place, about relationships to time, about the way you think about dwelling, the way you think about politics, right, lane then, give and take, um, there's a language here. And I would say rather than us rethinking the village, if we spent more time actually listening to the way in which people are moving and talking about the village and about these dispersed relationships, we'll have the imagination we need. We will see the mobility, the linkages, the changing settlement patterns, um, you know, I, there was a wonderful description to me about seeing a mahua tree in a city from a woman who was from Chhattisgarh and ran into a mahua tree in Bandra uh, in Bombay. And, you know, she said the mahua flowers were falling and so I picked them up. I don't know what to do with them here, but I picked them up because if mahua falls, you pick it up. There was a certain relationship that was important there, right? And I think the imagination of what you're saying about is it home right i think there's no room for glorification there is no room for an uncritical nostalgia these metaphors like i said about the you know lumbi fasal it comes with caveats it comes with depth they themselves correct our own glorification the idea that people are more labor or more this uh, or more landlocked 
So I think diversification has always been there. Um, I think we neither have the policy framework to deal with it, nor do we have the intellectual capacity to cope with it. I think differentiation is much more complicated than simply land-based, but sociology and anthropology and political economy still returns to a land-based understanding of differentiation, large farmer, small farmer, credit, it's all based on land. Both our policy imagination and our, um, you know, other uh, political economy imagination. So I think we are struggling with the amount of partiality and transition that India poses. Uh, we keep looking for a complete structural transformation, which is without accepting this is the reality of what it means historically to be Indian and to be in India. The regional diversity, we keep talking about it, but we don't know what to do with it. So I feel we have to go back and listen and engage with these places, see the relationships, and maybe from the language, the analytical language that people who live in between villages and cities and other places use, that imagination might emerge from there. And it's a way of theorizing from there, taking them seriously, not only as empirical beings, as empirical statistics, but as thinkers, as citizens, um, and I mean, it was one of the best descriptions of sociology and anthropology that I ever got um, in the Lumbi Fussel. Maybe they tell us a thing or two about what it is that we are trying to do. I'll stop here. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mikla. It was wonderful. Uh, <clears throat> I think we have uh, a lot to talk about. Uh, Arjun, what do you want me to do? Should we open it for discussion if there are any questions from the audience or? Can we have conversation with each other? So conversation would be good. Meanwhile, I'll collect all the questions. Yeah. If there are any questions, we can start with some questions. I think there are some questions already posted. Can somebody read them if there are relevant questions or should I or we look at them? Uh, <clears throat> modernity and urban facilities, provisions in rural tribal hilly forest areas may be explained with such areas lose its traditional and indigenous knowledge originally. Uh, it is correct to say that mobile mobility technology changes the village uh, morality and paves the way for materialistic mentalities. I think some of these things have come up already. <clears throat> uh, we can perhaps uh, <clears throat> take some other questions. We can also ask each other some questions. Manish, would you want to respond to the points that have been made by both Mekla and Santosh for two minutes and then uh, we can... Yeah, I will just take uh, two minutes. Uh, I think uh, Mekla had already uh, cautioned us uh, against any either glorification of the attributes that we have historically attributed to the village. And, and she had also made another point that whatever be the empirical basis of those attributes, once you have a set of attributes, they acquire their own, you know, what you say, weight, intellectual weight, uh, popular violence, and they get into circulation and we start responding to them. So in the case of village that has happened, but my, uh, and also uh, our point that we need to listen to the villagers themselves, as an ethnographer, I'm sure <laughs> she would repeat this again and again, and I take it at its face value. But my only uh, submission is that, uh, we also have to look at the ideological work that the idea of village has done. Uh, Professor Jokta's uh, work I referred to, 
So at least after independence, whatever we did with all the modern temples that Nehru invoked, at least in our nationalist imagination, we had some sort of the, uh, belonging, this idea of belonging, the authenticity, the purity, uh, and all other attributes that Gandhi so persistently had brought to our collective, uh, brought into collective political discourse through the constructive program and all. And that uh, Gandhian imagination at least survived in the interest, interstices of Nehruvian moral state. But now uh, I don't see that even occupying those, uh, you know, cracks also somehow. And that's why I think that. Uh, so someone has said that. So that's why I am a bit uh, not so enthused with this idea of belonging. Uh, that when someone goes back to the village, uh, I will put it this way, and this is my last point: that if people are going back to the villages simply because millions of Indians they have no option but to survive by relying upon a portfolio of livelihoods. So you go to Mumbai work there as casual laborers for five uh, months, go back to your village, plant your paddy, again go to Punjab and work in Mohali, again come back for festival seasons, bring some money and maybe help your brother to run a tree shop uh, near some uh, you know hospital or market complex in the village. So it's this portfolio of livelihoods which is compelling large number of Indians not to give up on this village. And that should not be read as this innate, inherent call of the Marti or belonging. That's the only point I would reiterate. I know I don't have uh, empirical data. I don't think such issues can be sorted out uh, by empirical data collected from a village, but that's the point that needs further debate and investigation. I am not saying more than there is also a question for you uh, on chat box. Yes. Shall yeah, I yeah. do the Maybe you uh, can read it yourself and respond. Can I just make one quick point? You yes, know, just sure. in the, uh, in yeah, the, while you read the, the question, please go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, give you time at the end because you are the editor of the book. So we'll. Yeah. Uh, I, no, I'm completely with you on. So I don't know whether belonging is useful or not. If people are talking about belonging, it's worth thinking about what is the word they are using mm -hmm. and what are they referring to. And I think belonging has a material basis as well. Um, you know, it could be that it's a basis in the family. It could be that you actually prefer the openness. I mean, I know people who talk about just what it means to live in a village where the things are open versus in a city. And that openness matters, right, to them. Um, you know, I think technologies and, and we sometimes underestimate the perils of villages. I mean, those of us who have done fieldwork in these areas know that even machinery and other things have their own uh, lives and can be very menacing and dangerous. I mean, when I saw the tractors come into the city, you sort of know how, you know, unsettling that is to take these kinds of uh, implements. They have a different life as well. So there's a materiality to how you think about transport or movement. So I would say I'm with you. I don't think we should necessarily say it's about belonging. Uh, I think it's all up for grabs and therefore when it's up for grabs it requires us to figure out where we want to root ourselves to redefine and that I think we do in these spaces of fieldwork and in, in practice. I also think it's I was trying to make a slightly different point about listening to people. 
Because again, I think when we listen to people and do field work, we're still engaging with them as informants, right? And I'm not a big fan of necessarily saying interlocutors, but I think they are analysts of their world. They are social theorists of their world. There are ways in which they are describing the state, the ways they describe taxation, the way they describe cash transfers, the way they describe Gram Sabhas and their construction and what, and I think that is not simply material. Uh, that is actually an analytical framework, an analysis. Um, and if we think about that as knowledge exchange, rather than as they are data, their insights are data, we should come up with an imagination. I think we should also challenge it, right? And this is where our role as scholars, where we go to other places, we work comparatively, we read other material. Um, it can be placed in conversation, in exchange with this material. So not to treat it as they to give us data, we do analysis, but the thinking around afresh about what it means to live these diversified portfolio lives, I think it, throws up enormous challenges, both for policy, like how do we reimagine policy and think, think about how it can be made more effective and about engagement. So I think I'm, I'm with you on that and, and not on the glorification. And I think the ideological work of the village is extremely important. It remains one of the big debates. Um, so I'll, yeah. I think before we go to the next question, uh, I think that's also important about colonial uh, kind of, uh, uh, what one should say, uh, uh, yeah. You want me to respond to I'll, that? No, no, I, I, I'm saying that before we go that go to that, let me also kind of add to uh, points that you have already made. I think the point about ideology is very, very important. And I think simultaneously, the point about materiality is also very important. If we put these together, then I think many other issues come up, which we have perhaps so far avoided talking about. Uh, and the obvious uh, question is that of which villager is one talking about, right? So we, were, we have been talking about diversity. We'd love to talk about diversity, but diversity can also be very hierarchical. Diversity is not just like, you know, a simple question of multiple colors. Uh, when you are a scavenger and Dalit in the village, uh, you get beaten up. I mean, that's why I think not only Gandhi who gives an ideological understanding of the village, we also have Ambedkar and we need to read Ambedkar. But at some level, whether it is Gandhi or Ambedkar or to some extent, even somebody like Tagore or uh, even Jawaharlal Nehru, they are all located at a particular moment in history when rural is being at some level seen through the prism of uh, Western imaginations about the world as the post enlightenment modernist imaginations about the world, world where they are actually trying to visualize their own whatever sense of self and their own imaginations of how India's future ought to be. And all of them are located in the Western modernist uh, narratives of the village. And they are at some level reproducing it as a common sense, as India's common sense. Now, Gaon, Shaher, Kasba, I mean, the kind of thing that, that, that Mekla is underlining that if you actually talk to the villagers, they are knowledgeable agents. And they're not simply aware of their own surroundings. They are also aware of the larger world and this is something which was kind of when I went to Bihar villages, I mean, anybody you speak to is a philosopher, right? They, they, they actually are philosophers. I'm not, I'm not uh, making fun of them. They actually will give you a perspective. Lalu ne kya diya? Ko diya. And then this is something which kind of will go on and on and, and we can keep talking about it. 
So I think uh, this whole uh, discussion of, uh, and it takes us to the idea of rural and urban very centrally, uh, and the idea of rural sociology and the questions that we are, we are, we are raising. Manish, you have a phone. Don't stop, you don't have a little bit of fun. Sorry, sorry. I'm sorry. No. So yes, I'm listening to phone call disconnected here. Uh, sorry, I'm all yes. Yeah. So uh, the point that I wanted to make at some level uh, around the point that you were making uh, that village as an ideological construct, village is an ideological construct. But as an ideological construct, when does it come to come to being? And when does it? I think the other point you made very very important is that it acquires a life of its own. You were talking about intellectual weight. I think that is very, very critical. When does it acquire that weight? When do we begin to see our rural from the perspective of rural sociology? Right? When do we begin to see our village from the perspective of urban middle classes and middle classes having a view over everything? And who is this middle class? And where does it come from? Why do Gandhi, Nehru, Ambedkar, and Tagore meet? And where do they meet? They all meet because there is a kind of imagination which is taking shape during the colonial period, which is actually translating Western modernity into a hegemonic agenda for the urban middle classes, where village is actually being at some level undermined, not only undermined, her agency is being taken away. And I think that's where Mekla's point becomes very critical that villagers don't have an agency of their own. It's either the sociologist who would advise and therefore imperative of modernity. And that's where middle-class hegemony comes into being. And that imperative of modernity then leaves nothing with the villager, whether it is Srinivas in 1950s or Manish Thakur or Santosh Kumar Singh, all of us think through these binaries that the future of rural is, even if it is going to stay, people are going back to the village. When did they come out of the village? All these migrants, even when they're living in, uh, in Munirka, they are living in a village. They don't really become urbanized. I think we need to revisit this idea of migrations. These migrations are not, not urbanizations. And that's where I think specificities become very critical. Not that rural and urban are not different, but they've always been different. And there are many differences that have always existed. Or Sheher or Gaon, they were parallel universes, right from Mohan Jadaro's time. In between, you have, you have cities disappear. By 7th, 8th century, you have urban civilizations in India and all over the world, right? It is only through colonization and the colonial period that you have this hegemonic idea of village being produced. And then that hegemonic idea becomes so weighty, as you rightly say, that the materialities begin to be not even talked about. So you talk about untouchability, but in a separate subject on caste, you don't talk about untouchability when you talk about village. You talk about reciprocity, you talk about the money system, you talk about it's contrasting to the urban and rural is backward, rural is uh, what 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 uh, 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 Tagore would say feminine right rural is simple rural is love rural is kind of you know uh, uh, infantile the point that you make right so developmentalism is not simply a statist agenda developmentalism is also a hegemonic agenda of the urban middle classes urban middle classes know what is good for the village so I think some of these points also then point us. Uh, take us towards a totally different agenda. That's the point I was making in the beginning, that in this discussion, when we are talking about remembering, we should also talk about revisioning, right? How do we revision the village? Is there anything called village? How many villages are there? I think we need to think of rural in plural. 
not only that there are kind of you know villages in kerala their settlement patterns are very different from those in bihar and up or in maharashtra and and hills of uh, himachal pradesh himachal pradesh you won't have a rural settlement with more than 50 households only five household 10 household 20 households i remember i was doing field work in solan district and this village sarpanch said chaliye saab aapko hamara constituency dikhate hain and he showed me that these 57 villages are a part of my panchayat right you can't imagine 57 villages in one panchayat but on hills that's how rural settlements are right and similarly if you go to kerala now you have basaddas where you have some kind of village identities but again uh, this is not the only special difference a fishery villages we don't talk about fishery villages there is hardly any village studies of a fishery village where traditional agriculture is absent and there are single caste villages in even in haryana there are single caste villages so i think uh, uh, this is kind of uh, uh, i think when we are remembering the village we also need to bring back those complicated realities so that these questions of tradition modern are made redundant the village is not going to go anywhere right even even america is rural right even europe is rural they talk about village life they talk about rural life and they talk about it quite a lot right even in terms of demographics europe becomes urban majority only right sometime in the late 70s 1970s right before that even demographically rural population is 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 much more so i think thinking in terms of uh, of 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 one one should say kind of diversities of settlement patterns rather than binaries of rural and urban empirically and theoretically will take us further where do you place mandi or small town right or how do we distinguish between between say delhi and munirka is munirka part of delhi i don't think so right do you have urban imagination in munirka yes of course right but is munirka like vasantkut uh, uh, which is just 2 kilometers away obviously not these are two different universes as far as a village in madhya pradesh would be from bombay right so i think uh, uh, i think these are these are ideological construct they have acquired their own weight but our role is also to at some level unpack them and then show that even in village there are there are materialities khule ghar ki kaam baat kaun kar sakta hai hawa mein kaun ghoom sakta hai right so there are dalit localities there also live like slums right so you have you know hardly any place to live that's why you don't have joint families among 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 working classes anywhere ever right and another point i think which was santosh making and and we always think about that is to think of village through the idea of change and modernity that village is changing now because mobile phone has come all villages ending now disappearing now because of urbanization villages were always changing i think david ladam comes to my mind as well he talks about 14th 15th century when rural areas of northern india were actually becoming emerging and agriculture was an urban enterprise right and this is a very important kind of uh, and he shows how migrations were happening the jat villages have not been there forever these only 14th 15th century 13th century that you have these new settlements emerging and again we in front of our eyes those settlements are changing tarai that we are talking about lakhampur village the history of tarai last 60 years 70 years it is the punjabi farmers why did they go there because land was cheaper there or at the time of migration and now the whole rural landscape there is very different so in 70 years we have seen things change in 200 years things have changed even in 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 times of uh, you know when we read history maurya empire comes urban settlements emerge in this area patna becomes patliputra becomes a major 
civilizational center. So to think that change happens only during this was a kind of European hegemonic colonial idea that change comes only with us before that it has been static. I think that the point that, that Mekla was making about, uh, about grain and, and market and state has always been there in village, right? Market and state was there even in the 5th century BC. <laughs> leave aside. So we think of, you know, static realities and, you know, homogeneous realities, but these are European peasant studies ideas. These are not our histories, right? Yeah. And there are also ideas there. I think I'll stop for, time, for the time being, sorry for, for carrying on for so long, but these are very interesting ideas. And because I work in this, I've been thinking about this. So I wanted to speak because this is a very interesting discussion. Please so, don't make is, if, I can, if I can just take 30 seconds to say it's also interesting, you know, you talked about change. Um, and what we don't spend enough time thinking about is persistence. Yeah. And it used to be continuity and change. And we assumed that continuity was for reasons of hierarchy, dominance, oppression. And change was the, dom you, know, you know, this big force. That's if you were modernizing. And on the other hand, you saw all change as bad and modernity and coming from outside. And persistence and stamina and continuity as tradition. Now, neither of those do any justice to the ways in which this circulation is happening or these exchanges are happening. And it's very interesting, the return of the word resilience is very interesting because persistence, reproduction is as dynamic a process and reproduction is never exactly reproducing yourself. You are always reproducing with change. Uh, you're always changing as you reproduce and then there may be a rupture. But, you know, this idea that we either had tradition and change and so the market and modernity was a menacing outside, which it was not, it was already internal to the process. Um, and therefore you had tradition standing up or you had this notion that tradition was what had to be destroyed because it was hierarchical and caste-based and all the rest of it. But today we have resilience, which is a very funny word because the same processes that produce resilience were also those traditional processes that produced reproduction of a certain kind. So we don't again have language that either we glorify or we destroy. So, you know, this neither continuity nor change nor, you know, easily rupture, resistance. Um, they're all actually ideological in that sense because they come from one project or another. Uh, and that's why they're not creative enough, I think, for this moment where a lot of unsettling things are happening together. I think that's where I think multiple voices are required. I think this is an urban imagination, which kind of, you know, we keep pushing, even if we act kind of being pro-village, we end up reproducing the same uh, kind of imagination of rural as being simple and, you know, incapable of thinking for itself. That's where I think the point that Nikola was making is very political, that they, are, they, they theorize their realities. And they theorize their realities analytically, not simply for themselves. I think it is for us to kind of uh, see those visions. And but again, there would be, I think, diversities. Uh, there would be multiple voices. Like if you, we don't talk about rural women generally, right? If one was to think of rural women, how would they visualize Mandi? What would be their relationship? This point about uh, Mandi becoming, you know, gaon waloka sheher and sheher waloka gaon. And these are very interesting moments. So what happens to, and this is kind of, I think, uh, uh, Santosh was talking about, I'm also seeing in whole Punjab, Haryana region, everybody wants to have a house in Mohali or somewhere in the urban center. 
where the women and the children can go and study in the school. And the point about reproduction, how reproduction of a rich farmer into an urban middle class is actually at some level uh, visualized through these, these kind of temporary and not so temporary migrations and you know, double stepping, not pluriactivity, but also pluri-residence. Pluri so I think these are, these, are, these are kind of interesting processes. And if one was to speak to their women, how do they look at the village or Dalit women? You know, there's also feminification of, of, of Dalit occupations. I remember again doing field work in a Ropad village where all the scavenging work is now done by Dalit women and their men actually do agriculture work. They buy vegetables from the village or take some land on the lease, grow vegetables and sell them in the town. They don't do scavenging work, but there are their women who are doing scavenging work. So there are also, I think, multiple voices and they need to be at some level represented through us as as theoretical voices, not simply as 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 informants who tell us. Exactly. And I think they are very rich. I think that's kind of sorry, Manish. We have been keeping you quiet for a long time. Now you have three minutes. You can speak, or even more. Uh, I have made my point. We'll go to Santosh. Uh, no, no. I have already. Uh, I agree with this point. I was saying in a different way. The point that uh, Mekla was making about the materiality of all these interactions and how. Uh, we need to listen to them also because that will help us, as you put it nicely, reconceiving or reimagining what the villages are all about. So, of course, uh, no one can deny that there is need for serious engagement uh, with the village, whether the villages matter or not. That we will come to know only in the process of engaging with the village. And uh, the one point that I like that you said that even how we we end up, you know, attributing. Though we want to be very nice to them, but in the process, we end up imposing our vision of the village on them, even when we want to listen to them and we want to be truthful to their world and universe. And there were a few questions about colonial construct and all that. And I think uh, I did not get into that because at least one thing that sociologists have done is that they have uh, taken great efforts to at least uh, put to rest some of the myths that colonial administrators had uh, put in motion. So that way, some of the uh, first generation of anthropologists and sociologists, they have already engaged with that. So of course, uh, colonial constructs had their own dynamism. And some of these colonial constructs did feed into the Gandhian sort of imaginary as well. So that's all I have to say, nothing more. <laughs> so it was a great learning experience and I, I, it's good to at least uh, Manish, I think we need to stretch, push a little more this point. I think colonial myths are alive today. They are, they are, they are living and kicking. They acquire a life of their own. And those colonial myths are, are resources that middle class now invokes as sources of hegemonizing over, over, over their voices, right? Farmers are not being heard because middle class thinks that we know everything about them. manipulate and they, those 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 uh, binaries and those myths also enter state practices. If you actually talk to bureaucrats, they'll reproduce those myths. It's not it's not simply uh, they have not gone away. You mm -hmm. might have theoretically deconstructed them, but they have become part of Indian common sense, common sense the right. nationalist through the nationalist imagination and developmentalism point that you have made elsewhere, right? I think developmentalism has become the governing ideology. 
Yeah, Mekla, you also want to come in here. No, absolutely. I mean, I could not agree more with the last point. I think it has become internalized. These are the norms and values. If you talk to bureaucrats today, you see that a lot of our work with every state officials, they are reproduced. And, you know, recently a, a young uh, new IS trainee comes to the and he's told by his senior, are you ready to rule? Right? Rule. So there is a real power here with some of these terms. Um, and uh, absolutely those ideas were not about, it was not a chronological period. It is the persistence of certain ideas about rulers, rulership, citizens, the contract with the state, um, the idea about development. Uh, these were not chronological transitions. Uh, you know, some of the interesting work on what it took to get bureaucrats to even create an electoral role, a universal electoral role, and how difficult it was for them to move, right, from that mentality of who should vote. Uh, so I think this, this point could not be more important. And I think as anthropologists, sociologists, we must study this and understand the norms and values and this common sense and how it has become routinized. I just wanted to take up a quick point in the chat box, I think that uh, Mehpal Singh has made here about as sociologists, should we only look at economic relations? And I think I would hope that this particular panel, at least what I've taken away is absolutely not. But if you look at you know, how sociology has thought about the economic, and this is going back you know, you can look at an Indian sociology and of course in a global sense, there's Moss and the gift. The whole idea of the total social fact was also that the economic, the legal, the social, the political, kinship, law was all part, right? Technological change, the technical and the social. So really interesting economic sociology also tells you that it's not about economic relations. I mean, the interesting work on cooperatives that Atwood and Mavskar and others did was all about the relationships between the social and the technical. Um, you know, the interesting debates we are having today actually about regulation are about law and the social, law and the political. Um, so I think what we do is not study economic relations. We understand, and this was a you know traditional Polyani thing. Again, I think we got into a, we got stuck. Is the economy embedded in society? And then we're saying the economy is an abstraction. The economy is always an embedded material, social reality, and an abstraction. Economic concepts require abstraction. Abstraction requires material work, right? There's a materiality to any abstraction process. Speculation requires certain material conditions. It, that's what leads to certain kinds of speculation. So, I think this relationship that we've been trying to draw in this panel between materiality and abstraction and imagination, and you don't have to name it abstraction, you can say imagination is interesting. Um, it is about the material life of an imagination, but also the imagination that enables new kinds of material relations. So there are both in a relationship, and I absolutely agree that we, in fact, these interactions, technology, modernization of transportation, education, um, you know, you talked about a handicraft, self-help groups, cooperative banking. You can study all these as purely economic phenomenon, but they are not. Uh, and I think that is, you know, some of the most important things we as, a, as sociologists must never forget. I think that's what we do that others don't do because they think about self-interest in a very particular way and rationality in a very particular way. Also, I think when we think about non-economic, we tend to, again, invoke a very romantic idea of culture. Yeah. 
Correct. As if non-economic is unproblematic and economic is the site of problems. Correct. That is not true. I mean, non-economic also includes ageism. Non-economic also includes patriarchy. Non-economic also includes caste. Non-economic also includes everyday violence that goes on in different kinds of settlements, not only in villages, but also in cities, also in kind of, you know, uh, uh, on roads, uh, wherever you go. So those realities exist on village as well. Uh, you know, violence against all kinds of categories of population exists in the villages in different ways and not that, you know, it doesn't exist in cities, it exists among different classes, different categories of people in different forms. So I think at some level as social scientists, we are not simply observers, we also have our own perspective. And if our perspective is the kind of perspective social sciences have, then obviously we have to be critical. We can't just celebrate rurality. It's not like rural is, is lost uh, tradition where we only can either cry about it or celebrate its disappearance. It's neither. So it's not like it was only oppressive. Rural also made a lot of promise because lots of people live there and they continue to live there and they will continue to live there for, for centuries. So there are going to be multiplicities of settlements and they've always been changing. And it's not like, so, but, but our engagements have to be both, both at some level sympathetic in the sense that we need to see what they say and how they say. And we also need to be critically engaging with them, taking them seriously, but also telling them, this is what we think about it. This is against the law. This is against at some level, you know, building constitutional democracy. If those are the larger political normatives of our times. Manisha has to go, I think, in five minutes. So I don't see Santosh here. So what do we do? And I think uh, Mekla is also uh, being called by her daughter to give attention to her. <laughs> um, <laughs> two, two minutes. And then I can perhaps take Santosh on phone. Is on the, the is yeah. absent, remembering villages, the absent editor and author. Uh, we have to, you know, recognize him here. No, it would have been great for him to have the know, right? What you said. Okay, Professor Jodka, with your permission, can I leave? Otherwise, yeah. I will be held up. My what campus is waterlogged, so I will have problems. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's what I saw. You were busy with something. Yeah, okay. Thank you. Yeah. Sorry, we wanted to give you five minutes. Chalo, he's left anyway. He seemed very anxious. Perhaps there's some... But uh, it's been a wonderful conversation. And again, apologies for joining late, but I took so much away from this and it was very inspiring uh, and exciting. We, we kind of monopolize the discussion. Uh, but uh, Santosh disappeared. They're busy. Gone. Can we... Arjun, can we contact Santosh? He can come in and then... Yes, sir. I'm trying to take... It's all right, Arjun, we can wind up without him as well. Right. So there's no network on him. No, it doesn't matter. Yeah, wind up. Huh? Perhaps you can conclude so we can have a yeah. yeah, Mekla, you want to say something? Uh, no, I think just to thank you and um, thank you particularly, I think also just for 
the the encouragement and the inspiration and i'm really hoping that we can take some of these ideas in you know and actually do it now uh, and keep building and doing this work because i think now it's that time right we have to it is as you said it's a political thing it's not a yeah, taking people seriously is not a, a professional practice. It is not something we have to be territorial about. We as sociologists are the people who talk to people or we do field work. I think it is actually a much larger purpose that we have to in, understand and engage with. I think the responsibility, therefore, of this work is different at this moment. Um, and, um, and I think that's where there's a, there's a certain kind of democracy here that is different uh, that we have to engage with. I don't even know if democracy is right. I'm sure people will come up with better words for that too. But um, I think this is <clears throat> a different way of engaging. Um, and I, you know, the point you mentioned about people being philosophers uh, and analysts, I mean, to me, that is the single most you know, important point we must bring. Uh, we have to put our conversations as honest, theoretical, imaginative, political conversations together now. And that I, you know, even for the financial crisis, I had a, um, you know, Monday trader actually who said, right? the shadow is his ability to understand the relationship between spot and future, derivatives markets and the underlying commodity. What happens when circuits get created and those circuits have their own power and then they produce detachment. And we live our worlds in that detached context. And that detachment has very, again, real material and uh, other effects. So I think it could not be more important. Uh, and I think there's a lot of work to be done. Yeah, so at least for us, I think uh, uh, those- is here over the phone. Santosha, if you like to add. Uh, yes, yes, I'm so sorry, everyone. I, I have to apologize because the technology really messed up with me this time. And uh, it was, it was, I, I'm feeling so uh, bad about it. But, uh, you know, I, I could uh, hear a large part of the discussion, you know. And uh, I would like to read four lines for Mekla. <laughs> These lines are from my introduction to this book. And it says, Remembering India's villages, therefore, is a tiny step in that direction. Remembering here is futuristic and not a wistful looking back. Gradually, an invitation to remind ourselves that the time has come to get real with the ruler, and the villages are not going anywhere, they are just being reconstituted. And I think you made the right point. I think that's what we have also been saying that villages are not going to go anywhere. It's just that we need to kind of approach them very differently. And that's where I think your book becomes very critical reminder, not only remembering India's villages, but also a reminder for social science communities that this is a very fertile ground. And I think uh, for us, people like you, me, Mekla, and uh, uh, Banish, and many others, not too many though, uh, village has been a very interesting and important uh, uh, site of engagement. Uh, and if we want to talk about uh, our society, our lives, and I think we need to, at some level, uh, 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 we have to engage with village. It's not like uh, if we have to engage with city, we have to engage with village. If we have to engage with poverty, we have to engage with prosperity. If we have to engage with life, we have to engage with death. So I think uh, these are very, very important kind of you know points. And I think, uh, like Mekla rightly said, this moment 
we have the ability to do that in 1950s 60s 70s even like up to 10 years back people were talking about you know where the village is disappearing where the village is changing village has always been changing and i think the time has come where we need to take ourselves seriously unless we take our own selves seriously that we can see things as they are rather than they have to be they they being mediated through some category which is constructed in in france or in germany or in us we can't see reality and i think that's the biggest problem that indian social sciences have had so i think it's very important to de- to to what what somebody called as particularizing the west not only europe entire west they did good work marx did very good work durkheim did very good work weber did very good work and now social scholars are doing very good work but they are doing empirical studies of their own contexts and from those contexts they they evolve those concepts look at pierre bourdieu he is he is looking at empirical processes of societies that he studied and those empirical processes then are at some level presented through certain categories and i think those realities are there in front of us and we need to see them as they are rather than following a particular kind of track of evolution which is going to end up at a particular place and we are either half modernized or you know our modernization is also deformed we don't need to worry about that all modernizations are like that all changes create crises problems deformities and hopes and aspirations and this is language of all said and done these are words these are categories that we are using but we need to also have confidence to to at some level translate the language of those whom we study i mean the, the villages also have their own own perspectives and those perspectives sometimes are far richer than the kind of perspectives that we try to impose on them and then try to tell them that you have to be like this otherwise there is something wrong with you and it doesn't fit in my theory and the problem is not with theory the problem is with you so you call them you are not even feudal enough you only semi feudal i think these are kind of categories the burden of you know imperialism at some level in some way or the other whether it is you know from the left or the right we continue to at some level deny uh, at some level the empirics uh, their own own kind of representation and that's where i think as social scientists we need to work and village continues to be very significant it will continue to be very significant but we don't need to look at village only as the other of the city or binaries of rural and urban uh, through, through, through those kinds of categories or through the categories of modernization and tradition we need to uh, see things as they are and as they are represented by diverse settings in diverse different ways thank you very much for um, we have talked so much now we should wind up thank you thank you so much sir and uh, there are also many things i thought to ask but uh, some other time because of the glitches so i would like to on behalf of impri center for habitat urban and regional studies uh, thank all of you for joining today on our series the state of villages has tangible realities and today on a, a book release of remembering india's villages edited by professor dosh kumar singh sir and panel discussion by india's villages matter challenges and possibilities we thank our uh, chair professor surinder jodhkar sir for being so patient despite so many glitches from many sides and all of our panelists santosh sir mekla ma'am and professor manish thakur sir uh, thank you and thank you to all the participants who joined here on zoom and watched on facebook live and those who will be watching later on our youtube and are listening to our other podcast we hope that you'll uh, uh, in future tune into our other episodes of hashtag web policy talk thank you everyone and have a nice evening thank you so much